So, welcome everybody. Um, I'm back. <laughs> I never went away. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, the initially after the surgery, uh, I couldn't even get to this room. It was difficult, uh, you know, because I had to kind of learn to walk and navigate myself again. And then uh, it's been almost three months, not, not quite yet three months, but um, then towards the end it, it was uh, like not having the energy to do it. Um, so, yeah. And uh, my physical therapist reminded me yesterday when I was trying to do certain things, well, you know, they took a part of your body out and put some metal in. So, you know, maybe that's why there's <laughs> something going on, some difficulty. So, uh, yeah, but it's very good. I've, you know, the whole medical staff, everybody's been incredibly kind and very, very helpful, so I'm really appreciative. And like I said in one of the BBCs, I feel if people are putting themselves out to help me, then I have to follow their instructions. Um, and so trying to do what the surgeon said and trying to do what the PT said. And you know what? When you follow the expert's advice, it works. <laughs> you know? I know many people in the country don't believe that. But my experience has been that it actually works, you know, uh, to our own benefit. So uh, we're going to continue from chapter uh, four about conscientiousness. Uh, we're in the middle of that chapter. I really appreciate Venerable Sangha Kadro stepping in for me while I was gone and, uh, you know, reviewing everything and then also teaching the Bodhisattva Vow because I think that's really helpful to everybody. Again, you know, many of you, most of you probably have the Bodhisattva Vow. So very good to, you know, review it. And it really points out, uh, you know, more... Uh, specifically how bodhi, you know, bodhisattva wannabes, which is what we are, um, try to act. So it sets out, you know, what the precepts do is it really sets out a model of behavior that we can try and follow, you know, rather than just say, well, I'm working for the benefit of all sentient beings. Oh, what do I do? Yeah. It, it's, it's like sets it out. Okay, well, make sure you don't do this and you do the opposite. And, you know, and I think that's very helpful for giving us some direction in our practice. So we'll take up from that. Let's generate our motivation. So let's remember that everything we have, everything we know, everything that keeps us alive, everything that enables us to practice the path and attain full awakening, all of this depends on the kindness of sentient beings. So we shouldn't look down on sentient beings. 
Yeah, we should respect them. We must respect them. And at the same time realize that they're overpowered by afflictions. So we have to hold those two things together. Yeah, yes, they're overpowered by afflictions, but we owe everything to them. We can't survive without them. So when we generate bodhicitta, we're not having pity on others. We're not thinking that we're superior and looking at them with a condescending attitude. But we're looking at them with respect and with compassion. And this goes for all sentient beings. Doesn't matter their current status in society, their current wealth, their current level of realization. We want to look at all beings in all the realms in this way. And if we say, well, how are beings in the lower realms benefiting me? Why should I respect them? It's because in previous lives, they were our parents, our teachers, the farmers who grew our food and so on. And in future lives, they will be that again. So don't look at sentient beings as being only defined by their present body and their present mental state. Think of them in a very expansive way. They've been everything in samsara, and someday they will also become Buddhas. And let that be our motivation for listening to Shandideva's wonderful teachings today. So, ah. Uh, Last week, I think it was, I got an email from a monk that I haven't heard from for many years that I don't know very well. But, um, you know, he wanted to check on something. But he started out the email, you know, saying that his mom had had a hip surgery and, you know, kind of like that. And, uh, And then he said... You know, it's very difficult to find people who, who really mm, kind of care about you uh, after, you know, in situations. And he just made that part as a casual remark. And I wrote back to him and I said, I, I don't agree with that. <laughs> you know, everywhere I look, uh, I see kindness. Yeah. And... Uh, I think this is really the beauty of the thought-training teachings, is to help turn our mind around uh, 
so that we see, see kindness. And even when we see difficult situations and we see people doing negative actions, yeah, we can turn that and see it as, okay, I'm in this situation because of my karma and this person's, the difficulties that they're bringing to me and to others, this is helping me purify that karma. It's also helping me develop my inner strength and to practice the Dharma and especially to develop fortitude and compassion. Because without this person or these people doing what they're doing, I would, you know, just be totally complacent and have no, I would never generate compassion or stretch my mind to uh, include so many sentient beings. Yeah? So if we train our mind to think like that, then, uh, you know, even the people who who we see, uh, who we normally see as thinking or doing harmful things, they become really our Dharma teachers who are giving us a chance to purify and a chance to practice. Yeah? And that certainly beats an attitude of, waking up in the morning and thinking, oh, there's all these incredible idiots around. Why am I living in this society with people who are like that? And, you know, just complaining about them, wishing them ill, you know? It certainly beats having that kind of attitude, doesn't it? Because where do you get when you hold resentment and you complain and you feel sorry for yourself? Where does that get us? It gets us in a hole, doesn't it? Yeah? And we dug it ourselves. (laughs) So, yeah, this this is, you know, we have to see how that mechanism works in our mind and then change it. And, uh, and that totally changes our attitude about life. Okay. It doesn't mean we we whitewash everything. Yeah, we ha- we can see things more clearly. In fact, but emotionally, we don't react to everything with disdain and contempt and complaints. Okay. So this is our job as Dharma practitioners. This is what we signed up for when we ordained. If you don't want to do this, <laughs> then check again, check up, you know. But this is, uh, you know, the, the wisdom side of us saw this at one point in our lives, and we signed up for it. Yeah, so if you forget it, come back to what you knew at one point in your life. That's why I recommend that when people, you know, when you uh, have a very strong feeling for the Dharma or for ordination or whatever, write it down why you feel this way so that if your mind ever goes south, you can come back and say, no, I didn't make a stupid decision. This is how I actually saw with my wisdom mind. Yeah, when I was seeing things clearly, so, you know, wake up, kiddo, and <laughs> come back to what you know in your heart is true instead of following, you know, the, the negative mind that just wants to, 
yeah, I say, yeah. Okay. So, um, I, just to remind us, because we're in the chapter about conscientiousness, chapter four, so how Asanga defined it in the Compendium of, of Knowledge. So he said, what is conscientiousness? It is an awareness that while abiding with enthusiasm, with joyous effort, within non-attachment, non-anger, and non-ignorance, protects one's meditation on virtue and protects the mind from contaminated phenomena. Okay, so the mind has joyous effort that takes delight in virtue. It's with, uh, and it, it's a mind of non-attachment, which is a mind that doesn't see anything fascinating in samsara. It's a mind of non-anger, which is compassion, and a mind of non-ignorance that understands cause and effect and has some inkling about emptiness. And so that kind of virtuous state of mind, it protects our meditation on virtue and protects the mind from contaminated phenomena. Contaminated or polluted phenomena are the, the true dukkha, the first uh, of the four truths. And it refers to things created out of ignorance. Okay? And so conscientiousness has the function of being the basis for perfectly accomplishing and completing all ordinary and transcendental perfections. Okay? So conscientiousness is what keeps our mind on track and doesn't let our mind get in, involved in all sorts of non-virtuous thoughts. Okay, so there's uh, several other mental factors that, that help conscientious to, conscientiousness to fulfill that purpose. But it really, it's, it's a mind that respects virtue, that respects goodness. And so when we keep that in our mind, then we're not going to fall to cynicism and contempt and disrespect and so on. Okay. So that's important to remember, you know, sometimes our mind goes south and we need to, to really uh, remember what, what to cultivate to bring our mind back to where we want it to be. Okay, so it's, we receive teachings in order to learn the techniques to do that. Then we have to think about the teachings we've heard. Yeah, before the situation arises, it means after teaching, you go back and maybe you listen to the talk again, you review your notes, you write down notes if you didn't take them, and then you think about those, you practice it, thinking about situations in your life where you can put that teaching in practice, and then you meditate on what you've heard you know, really integrating it with your life. Yeah, so these three things of, of hearing or studying, thinking, and meditating, you know, that's how we get these things integrated in our mind. If we leave out one of those three steps, yeah, it's like, you know, you're baking a cake and you're going to 
leave out the flower or something, you know, you're, you're not going to get the same result. Okay, so um, okay, so the chapter starts off, you know, talking about uh, the disadvantages of reneging on our bodhicitta. Yeah, the disadvantages of giving up bodhicitta and saying, you know, these sentient beings, they are, they're too corrupt, they're too this, they're too that. How can I ever benefit them? Okay, so giving up on sentient beings. It involves also giving up on yourself. This is too difficult, I can't do it. Yeah, or thinking, you know, enlightenment, that's just, you know, that's fantasy. So I don't need to really keep these precepts. I don't need to really, you know, what in the world was I thinking when I generated bodhicitta and made the determination to lead all sentient beings to enlightenment? What kind of egotistical thing was that for me to do? I can't even help myself. So forget sentient beings. I got to take care of myself first. Okay. And it's very easy, you know, for that kind of mind to arise and say, you know, I just made this ridiculous promise when I was totally infatuated. Well, Shantideva anticipated us thinking like that. (laughs) Okay. And he had some comments about it. Okay. And so he says, well, I'm going to start a little bit earlier than where we left off. Because he says, therefore, I should practice respectively according to my promise. If I do not strive starting from today, then I will go from low to low. Okay? So if I don't, you know, abandon negativity and downfalls, yeah, and give, and if I don't abandon this thought that's saying, you know, bodhicitta is too much, then what's going to happen to me? What's the result of that going to be? You know, I'm just going to go back to what I was before in deep in my cynicism and thinking the world's totally screwed up. And where's that going to take me? You know, which which of the three lower realms am I inviting myself to reside in when I think like that? Okay. And then verse 13, although for the benefit of every creature... Countless Buddhas have passed by. I was not an object of their care because of my own mistakes. So if I'm not conscientious, I give up bodhicitta, you know, I'm going to wind up just the way I was before. All these Buddhas came and taught the Dharma, and I wasn't around to hear it because I was born in a lower realm. Yeah? So, you know, maybe... Maybe I was even born at the time of Shakyamuni Buddha, but I was a flea, or I was a horse, or I was, you know, a cockroach, or who knows what. And it's by my own doing and creating negative karma that I wound up in that state and wasn't able to hear teachings directly from the Nirmanakaya Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha. Okay. Just thinking about, you know, if I give up bodhicitta after I've made this incredibly amazing, virtuous, you know, promise, 
What kind of effect is that going to have on me? You know, and what kind of effect is it going to have on other sentient beings? It's like they they use the example of you invited everybody to this big festival and this big feast and all these starving, hungry people and rich people and everybody, they're coming to this feast and they all show up and then you say, oh, sorry guys, I canceled it. Yeah. So that, that, that that's a worldly example of, you know, you say to everybody, I'm going to work for your benefit and lead you to enlightenment, and I have to attain enlightenment my first to really, you know, do that myself first so that I can really be a benefit. And now I'm just, you know, I'd rather watch TV. Yeah. So um, that that's the example that they often use. So we don't want to be like that. Okay, verse... 14 says, and if I continue to act like this again and again, shall I undergo suffering in unhappy realms, sickness, bondage, laceration, and the shedding of blood. So I'm just creating my own hell realm by my own way of thinking and my own actions. Okay. we see, This is the thing. You know, when... We're in a bad mood and we're complaining or we're angry or whatever. We don't think of the result of that bad mood. We don't think of the result of our complaining. We're so dug into the truth of what we happen to be thinking at that time, even though what we're thinking is total nonsense that we we can't even think about the results of what happens, not only if we think this way, but if we act according to those thoughts. And we can certainly see that in what's happening in the country. You know, people get involved in conspiracy theories, and, you know, they're taken away. Oh, if I advocate for this conspiracy theory... I'm going to be very popular. People will know my name. Uh, you know, I'm going according to, you know, what the, what the God of conspiracy theories said and, you know, Q and Q's embodiment and, and all these virtual, these, these politicians and so on. And, you know, this is what I'm doing and this is really true. Yeah. And, and then, it doesn't work out. And so, like all the people who were following QAnon, I mean, they're so disappointed now. I've, I've been looking at, at there was one, um, you know, they were interviewing some people who were, uh, you know, Q, um, QAnon supporters. And... Uh, it was right before the election. It was like, you know, just maybe even a few, I don't know, a day before the election or even on the same day. And there was one guy and he looked completely, I mean, he was, yeah, fine. You know, he, wa- he wasn't somebody who was like, you know, like this. 
And and he and the reporter was saying, well, you know, the inauguration is going to occur. I think it was like even later this day. And you know, you're a QAnon follower. What do you think? And and he was saying, well, I think something's going to happen, and Trump is going to will be inaugurated as our next president. And this was hours before the inauguration, and like something will happen. You know, Trump is supposed to declare military law. Uh, and and uh, and then he will be inaugurated, and all Q's prophecies will will come true. And you know, there's going to be this separation of good people and bad people, and all these other bad people are going to be executed, and on and on and on. And he said, "I know it sounds crazy, but I really think this is what's going to happen." And then it didn't happen. And you know, you listen. Um, there was a thing in the New York Times about somebody who who listened in at a, a QAnon chat room, you know, before and after the election, and before the people were so sure, you know, these prophecies were going to happen, and then afterwards, they were lost, you know, because they never considered beforehand. What if this doesn't, what if I think the results are going to be aren't what the results isn't what happens? And they probably never thought about, even if military law is um, declared and executions happen, uh, they're thinking, I won't be the people executed. But how do they know that? I mean, whenever you have an authoritarian government, I mean, you look at what Stalin did, and he executed his own people. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you had people who followed Stalin for many years were later, you know, executed. So I'm just using that as an example that, you know, maybe you can relate to. But the point is, you know, when our mind is overwhelmed with afflictions, we don't stop and think, what is the result of thinking this way? What is the result of acting according to these things, ideas? So when we're really mad at somebody, or when our mind's totally filled with greed and desire, we don't think about what, what the result is. And then we wind up in a mess in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And you can kind of see this very often in in people, you know, as they grow older, there's this heaviness in their lives, yeah, um, that's happened. And, uh, you know, we all make mistakes. I think we have to go back and own our mistakes and learn from our mistakes, and that dispels that heaviness, okay? But if we don't do that, you know, we're just involved in digging our own ditch, Okay. Then, verse 15. Yeah. So here we're going to talk about, again, disadvantages, but of what happens if our bodhicitta um, degenerates. So it says, if the rising of the Tathagata, faith, the attainment of a human body, and my being fit to cultivate virtue are scarce, when will they be one again? So you may remember 
In the Guru Puja, Lama Chopa, in the dedication verse, they talk about the four Mahayana wheels. So these are those four. Okay? So the, the four kind of conditions that help us to be able to practice the Mahayana path. And so the arising of the Tathagata, you know, having a Buddha um, in our universe at one time who taught, and then the lineage of those teachings still exist, and people who practice them exist so that I can, I can learn uh, the teachings, but also practice them together with other people. That's really important. Um, you know, what, what we find, what we're hearing from, from people who write to us is that the discussion groups that we have when we have courses, that people really love them because it's an opportunity to share the Dharma and practice together with other people. Yeah, it's one thing to meditate and get in touch with things inside yourself. It's another thing to actually discuss the Dharma with other people. And that feeling of support that you get um, and I, new ideas that come to your mind when you listen to others. Okay, so the continuity of the teachers, the teachings, and the, the fact that the Buddha was here. Okay, then the second of the four Mahayana wheels is faith. Yeah, so faith in the Mahayana, faith in the Dharma to start with, faith that the four truths are an accurate description of our, uh, of our situation. And here, the word faith in Buddhism doesn't mean the same as our ordinary Western word faith. We usually, uh, our, our English word faith, we usually um, think of blind faith, like I believe, you know, why do I believe? I'm not sure, but somebody else told me this was true or something I read told me it was true. In Buddhism, when we talk about faith, and you'll hear, you know, all His Holiness's teachings, He always emphasizes this again and again, you know, is we have to think about the teachings. We have to use reason and logic. And when you do that, and when you apply the teachings to your life, then you really see the truth in the Dharma. And the faith that comes from understanding is totally different. It's a confidence that arises. It's totally different than I believe because this book said so, or I believe because you know, my teacher said so, or I believe, because if I don't believe, I'm going to hell. It's totally different from anything like that. It's belief because you've learned, you've thought about it, you've applied it to your life. Yeah. And that kind of belief is firm and steady. Okay. Whereas blind belief, all you can kind of fall back on is, well, uh, you know, and you say the same things over and over and over again. Yeah. Okay, then the third of the four is the attainment of a human body. And so this is um, a great advantage because having a human body means we have a human brain and human intelligence. Okay, so having human intelligence 
is a great advantage on the path. Yeah. So it really, it, it pays, you know, look at our cats. Yeah. Look at the flies in the meditation hall. Look at the stink bugs in Ananda. Yeah. Look at the deer. Look at the turkeys. You know, just take them as examples and imagine having that kind of body and that level of intelligence and think, if I was born like that, then what would my mind be thinking about all day? Yeah. Would I have any attitude or any ability to understand the teachings? Yeah. Our kitties are delightful and we love them. And they've listened to more teachings than some of you have. But they've slept through most of them. And afterwards, if we ask, you know, (laughs) if we say, why are you chasing that mouse? Or why are you playing with that stink bug and killing it and eating it? They just look at us with their adorable eyes, you know, that say, well, just love me and pet me and feed me. But imagine, you know, if that's, if that's the extent of your intelligence, that you, you can't even understand somebody saying, don't harm others because they cherish their life as much as you cherish your life. Yeah, that you can't even understand that. So having a human body with human intelligence is very precious. And we should use that and not waste that opportunity. And then the fourth of it, it, uh, the fourth one is, uh, how does he put it here? My being fit to cultivate virtue. Yeah, and that that opportunity, being fit to cultivate virtue. In other words, I'm not imprisoned in a communist regime where I cannot even practice my religion or forget about even being imprisoned, you know, just even living publicly in that kind of regime. Yeah. The communism has changed now, nowadays, you know. But looking back, if you, you know, it's good. Do some reading about what, what, um, Russia was like and what happened to the Buddhists in, in, uh, Mongolia. Yeah. During Stalin ages. Do some reading about the cultural revolution, what happened to the Dharma, uh, in China and also in Tibet. Yeah. And see, you know, would you be fit to practice? Would you have those conditions to be able to practice? Yeah. Where even, you know, if you were saying mantra and moving your lips to say mantra, you could get arrested. Okay. One uh, Geshe I knew, uh, his family was, um, you know, I guess kind of well-to-do in the sense that they had their own house. Anyway, he was, uh, after the, uh, the communist, uh, Chinese communist invasion of Tibet, uh, he was arrested, you know, for being a monk, and he was imprisoned in his own family house. 
yeah, because the house was turned into a prison. And he told me he did retreat, but he couldn't move his lips. He couldn't have a mala. What he did to count his mantra was he would kind of guesstimate how many mantra it took from the sun to move from here to there in the shadows in the you know in the room or like that. Yeah. So very difficult. Yeah. And you know, they would sometimes write notes back and forth, you know, somebody had a Dharma question, or they would whisper, but they had to do it very secretively and destroy the notes afterwards because you know, religion was, Buddhism was completely, uh, you know, forbidden. So um, having that a kind of opportunity is is really rare, yeah. And you know, nowadays people people have been saying, you know, don't take democracy for granted. And a lot of us are going, wow, I've taken democracy for granted my whole life, you know. I've taken living in a pluralistic society for granted. And now seeing, well, it's very precious. Yeah. So let's not uh, fritter away that opportunity. That's verse 15. Verse 16. Although today I am healthy, well nourished, and unafflicted. Yeah. Well, at least the first two, yeah. Oh, but my little toe hurts. I don't know if I'm healthy or not. Um, oh, I have the sniffles. Maybe I better go to the hospital. Uh, you know, <laughs> our, uh, our um, what do you call it, Hi- uh, hypochondria, yeah? No, yeah, that's what it is, isn't it? So, um, yeah, so it's today... I am healthy, well-nourished, and unafflicted. But life is momentary and deceptive. A body is like an object on loan for but a minute. So we feel that our life is so permanent. This body is, you know, the body is the basis for our existence. It's never going to desert us. Yeah. But actually, it's, you know... They, they say that our, our well, like in, in 37 practices, yeah, that the mind is just a, a guest in the guest house of the body. You know, we're living in this guest house. It's not ours. Yeah? And it's not going to last forever. And it's declining, yeah, moment by moment by moment. And... It's interesting, you hear these teachings and you say yes, and when you're in your 20s and 30s, yes, I'm just, yeah, I'm getting older, you know, everything's going to decline. And, you know, your 40s, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. And, you know, your 50s, yes, everything's declining. But, you know, you're, you, what happens is your definition of old changes each decade. Yeah. And then somehow when you hit, 70. Yeah. Then something changes when you hit 70. But but it's it doesn't change that much because 80 is really old. Yeah. And then you think, but Grassley in the Senate is 87. You know? And he's still going, and Nancy Pelosi is 80 what? 
you know, and she's still going. And Mitch McConnell, my goodness, he's 80-something. So, yeah, so 90 is really old. Yeah, because 80 is only 10 years away from 70, but 60 is only 10 years away from 70. And 60 isn't exactly young anymore. You know, it used to be that 10 years ago from what I was was really young, but now what, 10 years ago from what I was a little bit older, just like 10 years ahead. Well, now that's not so old, yeah. So uh, that's, yeah, does that happen? Does that happen? You aren't even 70 yet. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's very interesting yeah, how that happens. Life is momentary and deceptive. The body is like an object on loan for what a, min a minute is. And, you know, you don't know. It could go like that. I mean, we got a request uh, last, last week to pray for the friend of a, of a friend who was somebody who one evening just started getting violently ill and vomiting, went into the bathroom, turned blue, fell over, and was dead in, you know, it sounded like matter of not very long. Yeah. And so that happens to other people. That won't happen to us, will it? Yeah, well, that's what the people it happened to thought, too. Yeah. And so then we get to, well, okay, it may happen to me, but if it does, it won't be for a long time. Yeah. Because if His Holiness plans on living till 113, well, I'm younger than him, so I can imagine living longer. You know, I'll live to 145. And even then, you know, my body, because I'm going to exercise and my body's going to be fit, I'll be raring to go, you know, at age 45. 145. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then verse 17 says, With behavior such as this, I shall not win a human body again. Like, come on, kiddo, you know, you're telling yourself, you know, well, basically we tell ourselves conspiracy theories, don't we? I mean, that's basically what afflictions are all about. I've really come to think about this whole term, conspiracy theories and fake news, in a totally different way these days. Because what our mind thinks under the influence of ignorance is conspiracy theories, and it's fake news, and it's alternative facts. Yeah? It's not just outside. We can't put this outside. This is what our own mind is doing when we're under the influence of afflictions. Yeah? Like, I'm not going to die today. Yes, I will get, finally get to the point. Yes, I will die. But I'm not dying today. Yeah. Isn't that an alternative fact? Well, we live until the end of the day and we say, yes, that wasn't an alternative fact. That was truth because I didn't die today. But based on that, then logically, I won't die tomorrow either. Logically, 
Because I didn't die today, it means I won't die tomorrow? What kind of logic is that? Okay, so you make your, your syllogism, I as a subject, will not die tomorrow. The reason, because I didn't die today. Okay, so there's agreement. The, the reason agrees with the subject, I did not die today. Is there pervasion? Because I did not day, die today, I won't die tomorrow? There is no pervasion. And yet I believe that syllogism is true. Okay. So, you know, we're telling ourselves alternative facts. Okay. So the body is like an object on loan for but a, a minute. 17. Okay, we got through 17. I shall not win a human body again. And if this human form is not attained, there will be solely wrongdoing and no virtue. So if I don't have a human body or a body of some of the gods, yeah, some of the gods are able to practice the Dharma, but it's still very difficult for them because they're, they're like people who, who um, they're the super elite, okay? The gods are the, the 1% in samsara, the 1%ers who live in this life of luxury and extravagance. And when you have that kind of life, you never think of suffering. And that's the disadvantage of being born in the God realm. You don't have great suffering, so that's, that's good. But you don't have enough suffering that makes you interested in the Dharma. So you get spaced out and you think, you know, that, that you're, you know, you're, be- I used to say Beverly Hills. Now I have to say th- South Florida. Um, your South Florida life is gonna, you know, lasts forever, and it's not. Okay. I grew up in California, so Beverly Hills. Oh, but now, even in California, it's San Francisco, not Beverly Hills. But people are moving out of San Francisco lately. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe they're moving to South Florida. Actually, some of them are moving to places like... Yeah, Idaho, Washington, Utah. Maybe they should move to South Dakota. It would really help that state. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, Then 18. If, when I have the chance to live a wholesome life, my actions are not wholesome, then what shall I be able to do? when confused by the misery of the lower realms. Okay, so this is a question. This is, we have to ask ourselves, and this is why I love Shantideva, because he's talking to himself. Yeah, in this book, he's talking to himself. And so that means I have to talk to myself in that, in that same way. Okay, so if when I have the chance to live a wholesome life, My goodness, I have an incredible rebirth. My actions are not wholesome. 
because I'm competing with other people and I'm jealous and I'm arrogant and, you know, I'm angry and I have a chip on my shoulder and I want to get even and, you know, and life's not fair. Yeah, which means I don't get everything I want. Yeah, isn't that? That's, that's a new definition of unfairness. It means I don't get what I want. Okay, so, yeah, so I have this whole opportunity, and my actions are not wholesome. Then, what am I going to be able to do when I'm born in the lower realms without a human uh, intelligence, and I can't think clearly? What am I going to do when I'm born as Maitri, uh, uh, I have to go in order, Maitri Karuna uh, Mudita Upeka. What am I going to be, what am I going to do when I'm born like that? Yeah. I'm born as Upeka. I'll go and sit in in Venerable Sumpton's lap. Yeah. Is that going to get me to enlightenment? Yeah. It's a comfortable lap, but, you know, it doesn't last forever. Okay. And she makes sure I come to the teachings when they used to be in Ananda, but they're not in Ananda anymore, so I'm missing out on the teachings. But even when she took me there, I slept through them. Yeah. Or I growled at my tree. <laughs> huh? <laughs> so, you know, what am I going to do if I'm born like that? Yeah, and that's just thinking animal realm. You know, if you think hungry ghost realm, hell realm. 19, and if I commit no wholesome deeds uh, there, but, you know, in a lower rebirth, but readily amass much wrongdoing, then for a hundred million eons I shall not even hear the words, a happy life. So if I'm born in the lower realms, and there's no dharma around me, and even if there is, I can't hear it, I can't think about it, I can't meditate on it. It goes in one ear and out the other, and sometimes it doesn't even go in that one ear. Yeah. Then uh, what kind of actions am I going to accumulate? I'm going to accumulate lots of non-virtue. Okay. Lots and lots of non-virtue. So it doesn't matter how rich you are, and even as a human being, or how much fame you have, or how much social status you have, or how, how beautiful you are, or how athletic you are, or how many awards you've won. Yeah. None of that matters in terms of our spiritual life. Because none of that, when we die, is going to make any difference. What's going to make a difference is what we were thinking and feeling and saying and doing when we got all those things. That's what makes the difference. Yeah, not how we look to society, not our reputation, but was what was going on in our mind when we were trying to get a good reputation and trying to be popular and trying to be 
athletic and artistic and recognized in society because of how wonderful I am and so I'm famous and I'm rich and I'm at the top of the thing. What was I thinking? How was I acting that whole time? That's what's going to matter. That's what comes with us to the next rebirth. Yeah. So no sense being jealous of worldly people. Absolutely no sense at all. Okay? Because, you know, if I wind up acting like that and I wind up in a lower realm, then it's going to be very difficult to create any virtue. All I'm going to have to rely on is all those times that that venerable Jampa made me walk around the Buddha statue in the garden when she took me for a walk. That's the virtue I have in my mind stream, you know, from just going around that Buddha statue. That's all. Yeah. And so, you know, it's going to be very difficult, and it's going to, as a result, very difficult to have an upper rebirth again. It's still possible because you still have some virtue that hopefully you created as a human being, and you have that virtue from the holy object, you know, so that's why we try and take our kitties around the, the, um, the stat, you know, the statue, or we chant out loud so they they hear us or whatever. Um, but that's all we're going to have to 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 rely on if we waste our time now. Okay, and so he, even hearing the words "a happy life" will be quite difficult. Yeah, and so here I think you know being born as a donkey in Dharamsala. You know, so you may have certain sentient beings who, whose life you've witnessed and how suffering it is, and, and you just think, you know, what if I were born like that? Okay, so verse uh, 20. For these very reasons, the Buddha has said that as difficult as it is for a turtle to insert its neck into a yoke, adrift upon the vast ocean, it is more difficult to attain the human state. Okay? So this is really, um, you know, emphasizing the rarity of our, our situation now. And again, if we don't use it, it and we fall to the lower realms, how difficult it's going to be. So here there's a, you know, this analogy that's found in the scriptures. I found it one day when I was reading the Pali scriptures. I can't remember which, which sutra it's in, but it's there. And it's, it's an interesting analogy because one part of our mind says, yeah, there's this yoke floating around and the turtle goes up and yeah, it's going to take a long time for it to get its head through. And what's next? Okay, but actually spending a session imagining that yoke, you know, just even in the in the Pacific Ocean, which is comparatively small to the ocean that they're thinking about here. And here's that, you know, you you take uh, uh, imagine what did you call the uh, the little rings that we had at kids that we floated around in the pool in? What were they called? Lifesavers, yeah, 
Not, not the lifesavers you uh, eat, but the lifesavers. You know, remember they were made out of plastic and they had clowns on them and they were about this, about this wide and you stuck your head through and held on, okay? So you imagine one of those floating around in the Pacific, yeah? And going from, you know, the south, from, you know, way down at, at, at the tip, of the Pacific Ocean, you know, near Antarctica, floating up uh, across the ocean to to Alaska, you know, almost to the Bering Straits, you know, going to the east to China, going to the west to Los Angeles, or or actually even further west is, is South America, yeah. I mean, further east is South America, and. And here's this lifesaver, you know, floating around, and you imagine it. Yeah, and it goes slowly. And here's this turtle who's blind at the bottom of the ocean who comes up every hundred years. And what's the chance of him getting his head through that lifesaver? Yeah. When, you know, spend a session imagining and the light, you know, the lifesaver is going here and, you know, he's far away and then the lifesaver is there and, the, and, you know, the turtle's in the other direction. And then finally they get close to each other, you know, but they're still a mile apart, which is nothing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And then they get closer and they're a yard apart, but he still can't get his head through the lifesaver. And then he hits the edge of the lifesaver, you know, and gets deflected away. Can't get his head through there. And then he floats all the way, you know, to the south of Chile. And the lifesaver goes all the way to the Bering Straits again. Yeah. Just just the analogy can be quite powerful of that's how difficult it is to get a human life. Then our mind goes, well, why is it so difficult? I mean, we have overpopulation on this planet. Why is it so difficult? Well, compared to the number of sentient beings there are, the number on this planet is minuscule. Okay. Even compared to the number of living beings on this planet, the number of human lives is minuscule. Think of all the beings in the oceans. Yeah. Think of all the ants and the the bees and the murder hornets and, you know, all these different things. All these living beings. And how many beings are there? Living beings compared uh, on the planet compared to human beings. Yeah. I heard one for every human there was ten to the twenty-fourth insect animals. For every human being, there's ten to the twenty-fourth insects and animals. Yeah. Somebody's guesstimate. But when you think about, I mean, think on, on on Shravasti Abbey land, yeah? Well, unfortunately, the number of 
of deer have, and elk have declined in recent years. Turkeys, we don't have so many this year. A few years ago, we had 60. Now we don't have so many turkeys. They might come back. But ants, yeah. Have you noticed the two anthills that are right outside the door here that become active in the summer? They're covered by, you know, hay. You can't notice them so well now. Two very big anthills that are buzzing. Yeah. And they're just very close to here. How many anthills are there around? How many, I don't, what do stink bugs live in? I've never heard of stink bug hills. But we, you know, I have a lot of them in my bathroom. You know, I don't know what they like about my bathrooms. Well, it stinks. Just. (laughs) (laughs) That's why. (laughs) But, you know, and then we start to think of bees. And, you know. We have lots and wasps, and you know, the, in the summer they all come. You know, how many ants are down at the end of the garden? Remember? Remember how many ants were in Ananda Hall one year? Oh my goodness, when we took the ceiling out of the downstairs basement and opened it up, and it was completely filled with ants. You know, we were outnumbered. <laughs> yeah? So if you think about that, you know, very, just by numbers alone, it's difficult to get. Why? Because it's hard to create the cause for a good, for an upper rebirth. Okay? It's hard to create the cause. And you say, well, yeah, it's not that hard. Well, think about it. Yeah, think about it. You know, well, okay, there's all these people, you know, who belong to ISIS. They go around beheading people. They're bad people. But, you know, everybody I know, they're really good. They don't create any negative karma. You know? Well, look again. Yeah? Do the people you know, are they always virtuous? Do they ever get angry and upset? Do they ever say nasty things? Are they ever biased? Are they ever racist? Are they ever partisan? Yeah? Are they ever greedy? Are they ever condescending? Yeah? Are they totally 100% truthful all the time? Do they tell, are they, tell their taxes accurately? Do they speak kindly all the time? You know, when you start Thinking, even the people you know that you consider to be good people create a lot of negativity. Yeah. And so it, and then you start looking at your own life. Well, I thought I was a pretty good person. This is my big awakening when I, when I first met the Dharma. It's like I went in, you know, there I was in my Indian clothing and my earrings and my long hair. And, you know, here I am. And then the, my big shock was, oh, yeah, when I look at my life, I haven't created very much virtue at all, like hardly anything. And my whole life has basically been centered around me and getting, I want what I want when I want it. Yeah, that's my life story. Yeah, very easy. 
Yeah. People sometimes say, you know, well, why, how about if you write a biography, you know? Have somebody write a biography. Well, that's my biography. I want what I want when I want it. Yeah? And you can fill in the details. So, um, you know, if, if, if that's what it is, it's very difficult to create the cause of, of uh, upper rebirth. Yeah. And and that's even this life when I've met the Dharma. Now, what about the lives when I was born as somebody who said, you know, Buddhism is just junk, you know? My religion's the best, or no religion is the best. Yeah. What about when I was born like that? And my mind was filled with tons of wrong views. Well, actually, you know, thinking like that wasn't so far away. I spent several decades of this life thinking like that. Yeah. And so then you really see it's not just by analogy. It's not just by numbers. It's by how difficult it is to create the cause for an upper rebirth. Yeah. And, and then you, it really makes you think, you know, I, I better get my act together. Yeah, I got to get my act together here. Say so for verse, verse 20. For these very reasons, the Buddha has said that as difficult as it is, oh, I already read that one. I'll read it again. That as difficult as it is for a turtle to insert its neck into a yoke adrift upon the vast ocean is more difficult to attain the human state. If even by the transgression of one instant an eon may be spent in the deepest hell, then because of the transgressions I have gathered since beginning this time, what need to mention my not going to a happy realm? Okay, so here it's saying, even if you transgress, you know, you have, uh, it's not just talking about one little blip of, you know, a negative thought, but, you know, I think especially in relationships to our precepts or, or things like that. Um, if you have, it says in one instant, one instant can mean that, one instant can mean as long as it takes to complete the activity. So one instant has a very broad definition. Okay, but because of something that is seemingly small, I could spend an eon in the deepest hell. You're going to say, well, this one instant, why is it going to wind up as a big rebirth? You know, such a, a bad rebirth for a long time. Well, remember when we talk about the four um, general attributes of karma? One is that it increases. Yeah. So when, and they give the example there of a huge tree grows from a small seed. Yeah. So look outside. We have some pretty big trees. 
Yeah. It's good. Stare at some of those huge trees we have and think they started out from something that was that big. Isn't that amazing? That one of those trees started from something that big. And then you walk in the forest and you see, you know, these little first beginnings of a tree. You know, they're just getting, they're about this big. You notice them when you walk and you're looking at the ground. And it's like, that has the potential to grow into this. Yeah. So in a similar way, you know, if we implant in our mind seeds of negativity and we don't purify them and we reinforce them by acting and thinking in that way again and again, then it's like that tiny seed, which at first is under the ground, you can't even see the sprout, you know, getting the water and the fertilizer and the summer sun, and then slowly growing bigger, okay? So that's why in uh, purification is very, very important, you know, purification with the four opponent powers, because if we don't do that, you know, we've planted seeds of negativity on our mind, and then we're just letting them sit there and germinate. It's like, um, it's like, you know what it's like? When, when you have cheese, and even you put it in the refrigerator to keep it uh, fresh, it grows mold. You keep your cheese in the refrigerator long enough. Yogurt, yeah, cream cheese, cottage cheese, you keep it in the refrigerator long enough, even though that's supposed to preserve it, it still grows mold, doesn't it? And you just keep, you you know, it's in the back of the refrigerator. You forget about it. And then one day you go clean out the refrigerator and you have something that's totally green. Have you ever had that happen to you? Yeah? You find that in the back of your refrigerator? Totally green and kind of fuzzy. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that was the the cheese or the yogurt or the cream, you know, I had before. Oh, hmm, I forgot. So that's what happens, you know, when we habituate ourselves with a negative action, yeah, we're putting more, you know, seeds of, um, mold seeds, you know, in, in our mind. And then we just leave it there and it, you know, it goes bad by itself. Yeah, because we don't purify it. It just, you know, it grows. And I think that's how somebody found out about liquor. They they left some grapes, you know, somewhere. They put the grapes in the bottom of their, their you know, cold place. Yeah, their cold room. And then came back a few years later and noticed those grapes. And, oh, they turned into alcohol, you know. I mean, people must have been, you know, that's how people discovered things. It wasn't like, yeah. So it's like that, you know. We just like let something, we put the negative scenes in and it ferments. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, we kind of wake up at one time and go, 
oh, no wonder I'm so angry all the time, you know? No wonder I'm so cynical. No wonder I'm so so selfish. I've just been, you know, planting this in my mind for a long time, thinking that it's good and right because that's what everybody else does. Yeah, that's what society thinks. That's what my family, love them as I might, you know, that's what they taught me. Yeah. Get ahead in this world. Make a name for yourself. Yeah. In in whatever kind of way your particular family encouraged you to do that. And then, you know, it was all involved around the happiness of this life. And that's what we did. And then, you know, we discovered the fermented grapes after a while and the moldy cream cheese. Yeah. I go, oops, oops. Okay. So I should leave some, uh, some time for questions and maybe answers. Questions. When I think about the rarity of creating pure ethical conduct, my mind kind of shuts down and is like, that's impossible, like looking at my life of acting ethically. So, okay. Now, is that true? What? That it's impossible to create ethical conduct. It feels really, really hard. I don't <laughs> care how it feels. Is it true? We can feel lots of things. We shouldn't trust our feelings all the time. Sometimes our feelings are garbage. Is that true? Okay, how did you... Okay, you have a precious human life right now. Okay, you have the eight freedoms. You have the ten... uh, I mean, yeah, the eight freedoms, the ten fortunes. What's the cause of your precious human life? What's the principal cause of your precious human life? Ethical conduct. And second cause? Six per- practicing the six perfections. Third cause or condition? Making dedication verses. Okay. So you have a precious life. Did you create those three causes sometime in the past? <laughs> Yeah, did you? I can't hear you. Yes. Okay. So, you created those in the past. Is it then impossible to create them? You did it already. Is it impossible to create those causes? No, but I guess that's where it comes into the the faith part of believing these. You are telling yourself conspiracy theories. (laughs) And you're believing them. Okay? Yeah. So can you create the causes? Yes. Louder. (laughs) Yes, you can. So why are you telling yourself you can't? 
And why are you believing those stupid thoughts? Okay, look where you are now. Look what you've accomplished. Don't put yourself down. I guess it just feels more like a, I don't know, a logical thing that it's... Is it logical? Yeah. (laughs) Again, I don't care if it feels logical. I want to know, is it logical? It's like you're hungry and you say, well, I feel like I'm full. Is feeling full going to solve your hunger? No, you have to eat. So feeling, I don't care. Is it, is it logical? Yeah. Is what you're telling yourself logical? I guess that's, it doesn't feel, I don't, <laughs> it doesn't seem logical. As that's where my mind gets stuck, that um, to, to not kill and to do all those things, it, Yeah. What, it doesn't seem logical to not kill? To, to know, to, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, based on kind of humans and just okay. so many factors that okay. we do. Well, we'll take it the other way. Does killing, what's your feeling about killing? Does killing bring you something good in your life? But kind of biologically the way we've been I forget that <laughs> what tell me what you th- what you think right yeah well even biologically does does killing get you anywhere it keeps you alive really <laughs> human beings we've been killing each other for a long time and what you kill one human being what is that what happens they get all their friends to come and kill you back That's what war is about. It starts with one person. Does killing say, you know? Yeah. Killing doesn't keep you alive. Killing makes other people hate you and want to kill you. Doesn't keep you alive. I mean, you got to think even evolutionary, what His Holiness talks about when he says it's survival of the most cooperative not survival of the fittest. Okay. And and he gives the example of the bees and the ants, you know, who help each other. And so the whole community thrives because of that. Yeah. I mean, imagine here you said, oh, killing keeps you alive. Yeah. So imagine here at the Abbey we start killing each other. Yeah. Then what's going to happen? <laughs> That's not keep us alive. Okay. So if killing doesn't, you know, even biologically help, because we have to to stay alive biologically. Like I said, our initial motivation, we depend on other living beings. Okay. So if killing doesn't is non-virtuous, it isn't conducive for human happiness, then shouldn't abandoning killing be something that's conducive for happiness? Wouldn't that be logical? Yeah. Otherwise, your ethics get completely twisted. Then stealing becomes logical. If I steal, then I'm rich. 
So stealing keeps me alive. So everybody should steal from each other. Then what kind of society we have where it's good to kill because, because biologically it keeps us alive and it's good to steal because, but that keeps us alive too because then we have all the food and nobody else has it. Yeah. Then what kind of society do you have where everybody's doing that? Does that bring happiness? Huh? What kind of society do we have? The one? Yeah. Yeah. We kill and steal. Yeah, we kill and steal. Yeah, this is... Okay. So think about it, you know. Think about what virtue is and what non-virtue is and what the result of it is. Yeah. And stop telling yourself you can't do it and it's too hard and it's too high because look at what you've gotten yourself now And where you are now didn't come about by accident. It means you created the causes. Yeah, I didn't create the causes for your precious human life. You created them. Okay. So give yourself some credit and know that you, you know, you did it once, you can do it again. Okay, so we have to close now.